Well, good morning. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I'm grateful to share God's word with you this morning. For those of you who don't know me, I am Helen Ree, one of the appointed associate pastors here at Free Methodist Church. As a church, we have been studying 1 Peter since September, and it's been both rich and challenging. Last two weeks, PS Pastor Colleen and Pastor Jake taught particularly difficult passages, Peter's exhortation to slaves and Peter's exhortations to wives and husbands, respectively. Today's text comes from 1 Peter 3, 8 through 22, and which I find also challenging. It's a long passage, but please follow along as I read. So 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you are called, that you might inherit a blessing. For those who desire to love life and to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated, but in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you, on accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Maintain a good conscience so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight lives, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. The word of the Lord. From chapter 2, verse 18 to the last week's passage, Peter addressed the specific groups of Christian households. First, slaves, 
from chapter 2, 18 through 25, and then wives, chapter 3, 1 through 6, and then husbands, chapter 3, one, uh, verse 7. Now in verse 8 and on, Peter addresses the entire community of his readers. Thematically speaking, our text has three natural uh, uh, sections in it. First, the sections from verses 8 through 12. Second section is from uh, verses 13 through 17. And finally, uh, the last section, verses 18 through 22. So let's take a look at uh, each section more closely. So I'm going to uh, leave uh, the passage up here so that you can follow along. And I do really recommend you do follow along. In the first section, verses 8 through 12, Peter exalts all in the Christian community to do what is right amongst one another on the one hand and to do what is right to the hostile, unbelieving outsiders on the other with the scripture support of Psalm 34. Verse 8 first focuses on the five characteristics that foster mutual humility and internal solidarity of the Christian community. First, unity of spirit in a sense of like-mindedness, then sympathy, then love for one another, literally, uh, you know, in Greek is a brotherly love here. A tender heart literally means compassion in a sense of showing kindness, and finally, a humble mind. Here, a particularly notable quality is humility, the last one, which was not a virtue in the ancient Greco-Roman society. In the highly competitive and stratified world of the Greco-Roman antiquity, only those of degraded social status were humble, and humility was regarded as a sign of weakness and shame, an inability to defend one's honor. Therefore, the high value placed on humility here and in Paul's letters was certainly countercultural. Together, these five uh, terms identify Jesus' followers by their characteristic inclinations toward intimacy and their orientation to the others as embodied qualities. By cultivating and exhibiting these qualities, Christians show their primacy, primary commitment to one another as brothers and sisters of the faith. On the other hand, verse 9 focuses on appropriate Christian response to the hostile outsiders. It says, do not repay evil for evil for, or abuse for abuse. Here, the abuse is more of a verbal abuse. So probably the better translation is insult for insult. But on the contrary, repay with a blessing. This marks a radical departure from the prevailing Roman social script that prescribed retaliation, vengeance, vendettas, and blood feuds for violations of personal and group honor. Jesus, of course, had urged and practiced the renunciation of retaliation, as we see in Luke chapter 6, 27 through 28. 
But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So following Jesus, Peter exhorts Christians to forgo the usual ways of retaliation that would be necessary to defend one's honor and reputation in the society. Such unusual conduct, short-circuited and vicious cycle of uh, short-circuited the vicious cycle of retribution and escalating violence. If that was not hard enough, we are to repay or respond to evil and insult with a blessing. Blessing one's detractors means calling down God's favor upon them, literally calling down God's grace upon them. As the retired New Testament professor Karen Jobs notes, quote, it is exactly when we are insulted and treated with malicious intent that we are most tempted to respond in kind by gossip, exaggerating the extent of the fault or with outright slander. Those who are able not simply to clench their teeth and remain silent, but to maintain um, an inner attitude that allows one to pray sincerely for the well-being of one's adversary, adversaries are truly a witness to the life-changing power of a new identity in Christ. Isn't that a powerful quote? Um, how are we doing with responding to evil and insult that is pointed at us? How are we responding with, are we responding those insults with active blessing rather than passive aggression? In adopting this course of action, Peter's readers will not only be following in the footsteps of their Lord who refused to repay insult with insult but they also will be acting in accord with their divine calling, as seen in the latter part of verse 9. Repaying evil with a blessing is indeed a Christian calling, according to Peter. This is so, this is so that they might inherit, not earn, but inherit God's blessing, as supported by the biblical citation of verses 10 through 12. Peter's citation of the Psalm 34 in verses 10 through 12 is a reminder that, God's that God indeed vindicates the suffering righteous who do good, and that God's face has always been against those who evil. The question is, do we believe that? And do we live as though we believe that? The second section, verses 13 through 17, picks up this theme of the suffering righteous for doing what is right or what is good. Now, verse 13 starts with the normal principle that others are less likely to do wrong or harm 
to believers if believers are eager to do good. However, Peter immediately acknowledges in verse 14 that even so, sometimes believers will indeed face suffering for doing what is right. In these verses, Peter stresses the importance of blameless behavior, regardless of how his people will be treated. And he urges them to be, quote, eager to do good. Now, in Greek, that literally means to be zealots of, to, uh, to be zealots of the good. The noun zelotes in Greek describes the one who is eager to perform some action or who may be an enthusiastic adherence to a cause. Peter's readers, therefore, do not do good accidentally, but purposefully. I want to repeat that. Christians do not do good accidentally, but purposefully. As Pastor Nikki shared this morning, getting involved with the Set Free movement and also uh, getting involved with the Kitchen for Foodless ministries and things like that. We do it purposefully. The unbelieving world might or might not recognize Christians' intentionality for doing good, however. Christians might suffer in the environment of suspicion and hostility. Precisely in this context, Peter describes them as blessed, echoing Jesus' teaching Matthew 5, verses 10 through 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This beatitude is just as jolting in Peter's letter as it must have been and continues to be in Jesus' proclamation. Then how should the Christians respond to the unjust suffering? First, negatively, in the second part of the verse 14, do not be afraid of or intimidated by their oppressors, that is, those who may harm you even if you are eager to do good. Second, positively, in the first part of verse 15, in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord, meaning set apart Christ as Lord. Rather than being intimidated, Peter's readers should resolutely offer a defense, apologia, of their faith in the second part of verse 15. In most of its New Testament occurrences, the word apologia, or defense, refers to making a verbal argument for the Christian faith before people who are, not, who are antagonistic toward its claims. What Peter had in mind is most likely neither the academic field of apologetics nor the formal defense in a legal trial per se. But Peter is here admonishing his readers, even as a tiny and helpless minority in Roman society, to be ready to defend their beliefs by giving reasons why they have hope. Peter has already described the Christian faith as a living hope, as we just sang this morning, 
chapter 1, verse 3. And he also described the Christian faith as hope in God in chapter 1, verse 21. And in both instances, Peter bases his, this hope on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Perhaps Peter is urging his readers to be ready to discuss the ministry of Jesus, especially his resurrection, whenever they are questioned. In fact, that's what Peter himself did in his defense of the faith at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He focused on the ministry of Jesus with special attention to his resurrection. Then, Peter qualifies Christian's defense in terms of how it should be done in verse 16. First, they should testify with gentleness and respect, in contrast to the insult and malicious talk of their oppressions, oppressors. Then, second, they should have a clear conscience regarding their personal integrity before God in walking the walk, not just talking the talk. How ready and willing are we to give an accounting for our hope in Christ? Do we have integrity when we testify to our hope in Christ? In our resolute defense of our faith, conducted with graciousness to those who oppose us. In closing this section, Peter says in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good in suffer if suffering should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. In original Greek, it says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if the will of, the God, will of God should will it than to suffer for doing evil. What does it refer to when Peter says, if the will of God will it, should will it? What is God's will here? To suffer as translated here, or to suffer for doing good? John Eliot, another New Testament scholar notes, the point here is not that God wills suffering per se, but that God wills doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong, even if and when this results in suffering. The sense of this sense of verse 17 is made clear by the parallel expression of verse 14 when it says, even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. What Peter seems to be saying is that a faithful and obedient life of a Christian, even under suffering, is better. Because being so unexpected to unbelievers and so unnatural in their view, it constitutes a convicting witness to the power of the gospel to transform and empower human lives. Indeed, the primary model for this behavior and the surety of vindication of those who in Christ are indeed the conduct and experience of their suffering and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the point of our last section, verses 18 through 22. 
Now, thus to strengthen the resolve of his readers who suffer for doing what is right, Peter again here recalls the suffering of their innocent Lord in verse 18, as he did in chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. In the previous chapter 2 passage, Peter emphasized the need for the slaves to follow in the footsteps of Christ who suffered for them. However, in this section, Peter exhorts all Christians to identify with the experience of Christ, not only his innocent and vicarious suffering and death, but also the divine vindication of his suffering and death, namely his resurrection, ascension, exaltation at God's right hand. This demonstrates Christ's ability to bring believers to God and his ultimate exaltation and glorification at God's right hand is the guarantee of Peter's readers and our vindication as well. But welcome to these verses 19 through 20. Here. Whoops. Okay. Now, I can't quite really see what's in front of me there. So are we there, verses 18 through 22? Okay, good. Well, this section, especially verses 19 through 20, is the most, one of the most difficult and debated passages in the entire New Testament. Regarding this passage, the German reformer Martin Luther said the following, quote, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than many other passages in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant, end of quote. Trust me, Luther never lacked confidence in his own interpretation. <laughs> so for him to say this is a big deal. As a matter of fact, I read so many commentaries actually for preparing for this message, but one commentator even said that there are 158 different interpretations on this passage. <laughs> so therefore, try to interpret this passage is indeed a lesson in humility. Uh, so let's take a look at this passage. He is starting with the end of verse 18. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of ark, in which a few, that is eight lives, were saved through water. Now, the debate over these verses basically comes down to the following three questions. Question number one, when did Christ make his proclamation? Second, to whom did Christ make his proclamation? Third, what did Christ proclaim? So I'm going to quickly share just three major interpretations in church history about these passages. The first 
ancient interpretation is called the harrowing of the hell. According to this, Christ descended into hell in his disembodied spirit during the time between his resurrection and his, uh, his excuse me, during, during, between the times between his crucifixion and his resurrection. This view, touched upon by the Apostles' Creed, appears to have originated in the second century or uh, early third century by Clement of Alexandria. According to this view, this proclamation is an evangelistic message that is the gospel of salvation and the imprisoned spirits are taken to be the deceased humans from the Old Testament. The second ancient interpretation says that before Christ became incarnate, that is the pre-incarnate Christ preached the gospel of salvation through Noah to those of Noah's generation. Augustine proposed this view in response to the first view because the first view raised the theological problem of possible post-mortem conversion, that is, people being saved after death. That is unbiblical. So uh, this view then gained popularity with the Protestant reformers. Nevertheless, because of Peter's vocabulary and his clear reliance on Jewish tradition, most modern scholars take verse 19 to mean that Christ, after his resurrection and prior to his exaltation, proclaimed the message of victory to the imprisoned spirits. Who are the imprisoned spirits? They refer to the fallen angels awaiting the final judgment due to their disobedience during the days of Noah. The fallen angels are mentioned in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, but elaborated upon in an ancient Jewish text known as First Enoch. What are the grounds then for this interpretation in these verses? First, Peter never speaks of the descent, although some assumed Christ must have descended in order to fill out their picture of him going into hell. Second, Peter makes no mention of hell. Third, the abode of the dead is not called a prison in the New Testament. Fourth, the Greek word proclaim, kariso, simply means to make a pronouncement rather than to evangelize. And finally, the language of spirits who are imprisoned in, uh, is most naturally taken to refer to the supernatural beings rather than humans, especially in light of 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6, both of which speak of the fallen angels. Well, I just presented to you the three main interpretation of the most thorny passages in the New Testament in three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> now, let's bring this all together. This last section explains that, indeed, it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Because Christ, by the power of his resurrection and ascension, has defeated all the powers of evil and will judge them along with all who practice evil, just as in the days of Noah's. 
Brothers and sisters, how should we respond to Peter's message today, despite its contextual difference? In each section, Peter's exhortation uh, is radically countercultural and therefore subversive. And despite that, or rather because of that, it may be challenging for us to fully appreciate it. I used to wonder whether Peter was condoning evil and unjust suffering when he says, repay evil with a blessing, and it is better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. However, against violent retaliation in kind, and also against servile capitulation to the dominant social values, Peter has shown a third way here, radical non-retaliation. This renunciation of retaliation is not passive aggression or religious quietism. This radical collective non-retaliation through active blessing and purposeful good deeds is a powerful protest to evil and injustice. But it only makes sense when we believe Christ's way of the cross is indeed right. And it only makes sense when we believe and actually live as though God as the final judge will surely vindicate God's people, just as he vindicated his son. May God grant us strength and courage to live out this radical non-retaliation in our lives today. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.